Good morning, friends. I'm so glad you could be with me today as we study God's Word together in the Unfolding the Word ministry. We're in the midst of an extended study of the book of Romans. The last two days, we've begun a study in the second chapter, looking at verses 1 to 5. And I want to pick up our reading there again today as we continue to examine these verses. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up for yourself wrath on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. We've been talking about the fact of the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, Romans 1.16. Following up on that great truth, the latter part of the first chapter of Romans begins to identify the fact that all are sinners and separated from God. All are accountable and all need that gospel that is found through Christ's death on the cross and resurrection. The last part of the first chapter talks about how in rebellion against God, sin becomes the master. It ends up showing itself in slavery and the areas of immorality, sexual depravity, and also in debased living. Chapter 2 opens up, turning attention now to the person who is on that scale of humanity, on the upper end of the scale of relatively righteous, over against those whose lives are truly depraved in all normal human measurements. Such people, generally good, relatively good, at least in relationship and in comparison to the most morally degenerate types of people, they often feel very settled and very proud before God. They're confident that God marks humanity on some sort of curve and that their good works are good enough to merit a relationship with God, to give them a future and a hope in the presence of God, going to heaven, so to speak, to be with the Lord. But they, in mistaken understanding, don't recognize that they also are sinners, they don't consider the greatest of the commandments, which is not a moral commandment at all, but the commandment to love our Lord, the God, with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, and recognizing that they've broken that greatest of the commandments. All, therefore, are sinners. And they also reject the idea, or don't understand the idea, that sin, as Jesus talks about it in Matthew chapter 5, is not simply the matter of the action, but also the thoughts and motives and intents of the heart, that you are guilty of immorality, adultery, by how you think of someone, not only what you do toward them in action, and same with murder and so forth. Well, at any rate, that's the key that we've been examining. Now, what I want to pick up on today in these verses is this question, which is often posed, and certainly is the backdrop to these opening verses. And the question is this. How many sins does it take to separate us from God? In terms of the very beginning of the Bible, let's look at Adam and Eve, God's 
original creation of humanity, living in the Garden of Eden with God. How many sins did it take for Adam and Eve to be pushed out of the garden and separated from God, put in a place where some sort of sacrifice had to be done? And the answer to that question, to both of these questions, essentially, is this. It just took one sin. In the garden, it took one determination to break God's law as it related to the eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One sin was enough to separate Adam and Eve from God. One sin was enough to require a blood sacrifice to pay for the consequences of that sin. One sin was enough to be excluded and expelled from the Garden of Eden. And that garden closed off to humanity. One sin is all it took. Now, why is that? Well, James chapter 2, verse 10, I read this to you yesterday, but it helps us to understand that. It says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in just one point has become accountable for all of it. Listen, the issue of sin or sinfulness, being a sinner or not a sinner, is really an issue of absolutes. It's not an issue of relativity. We are either holy, pure, righteous before God, or we're not holy, pure, and righteous before God. <laughs> we're one or the other. The relative differences among humanity on this question are really ultimately sort of irrelevant. And I think you can understand this if you think of it from another direction. For example, let me pose this question. How many people can you kill before you are a murderer? How many robberies can you commit before you are a thief? And the answer to both of those questions, of course, is a very obvious just one. You are either a murderer or not a murderer. Now, of course, if you are a murderer, you could also murder many people. And so you're a murderer multiple times over. Or how many robberies does it take to be a thief? The answer is one. You're a thief if you've committed robbery. Now, of course, as a thief, you could be a thief over and over and over again and commit multiple robberies. But the fact is, independent of how many murders, independent of how many robberies, if you've committed one, you are now a murderer and you are now a thief. Well, before God, humanity is either a sinner or not a sinner. An individual human being, a man or a woman, is either a sinner or not a sinner. And how does God distinguish that category? He says, have you kept my law perfectly? Have you remained holy before me, pure before me? Or have you failed at some point? Have you stumbled at some point and now have sin like Adam and Eve had that needed atoned for and paid for? The issue is what is not quantity. The issue is the quality of the life. Either one is a righteous person, holy, or they are a sinner. Now, as a sinner, they might be on a whole continuum of how much sin they do, but they are in that category of being a sinner. The fact of the matter is, no one is able to stand 
righteous before God based on relative righteousness. They stand as righteous before God based on an absolute standard, God's holiness and righteousness. If, if we are not holy and righteous according to the standard of God himself, then we are by default sinners. Remember, God is loving, but he is also holy, righteous, and just. He doesn't stop being any of those things. And therefore, if you are not holy and righteous, justice, the justice of God, requires that you be separated from his holiness and his righteousness. No one stands righteous before God based on relative righteousness. The fact that you've done a better job than some other man or woman has done. The point of it all is this. We still stand as sinners before a holy God, even if our lives on a human measuring device are not as morally degenerate as somebody else's life. The point of it all is that all of us need the gospel in order to be saved. That's true whether we're relatively righteous or, we're, we're, or whether we are relatively morally depraved. Everybody needs the gospel. All of us need, as Romans 1.16 put it, the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. All of us need a solution to the fact that we actually have broken God's commandments. How many we've broken is not the issue. The issue is, have we broken them? The justice and holiness and righteousness of God requires that lawbreakers can no longer be in the presence of God and must in some way pay for the solution of the guilt of the sin. Well, join me tomorrow as we continue our look at these verses because I want to talk about how God helps us to see here that in a very real sense, it is his grace and nothing less than that that, he, that kept us from even greater moral depravity in our lives. Join me as we look at that example together, an example that certainly fosters humility in the life of a man or a woman. God bless.